And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Friday, March 10th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Robert O'Shaughnessy. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, a state demonstrates what you can do with blockchain and data management for customer experience. Plus, this agency got so much extra funding it has to reorganize. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, a major focus of the White House's fiscal 2024 budget request sent to Congress yesterday continues efforts to strengthen the federal workforce. It starts with a request for the largest pay raise for feds and military service members in more than 40 years. Federal News Network's executive editor Jason Miller joins me now to dig into what else the Biden administration wants for federal employees. And Jason, we know the budget numbers are just starting points for negotiations, but let's start with this pay raise. What exactly are they saying here? The Biden administration is asking for a 5.2 percent pay raise for federal employees for 2024. How that gets broken down, Tom, we don't know whether it's going to be some locality pay and some you know standard pay raise. That's how it usually goes. But the fact is that 5.2 percent is the largest request since the Carter administration in 1980 when they asked for 9.1%. Now, again, it's just a starting point, no guarantees. But what's interesting about this, Tom, is they realize that, number one, with inflation, big problems. Two, the, the, the Federal Salary Council continues to find that federal employees are underpaid for the work they do as compared to the private sector. So I think the Biden administration, this is part of their approach to say, we realize pay is important as well as many other things that agencies do for their federal workers. But this is a starting point, and this is where the negotiations will begin. And presuming the FAIR Act does not pass with the 8.7, and there's nothing said in whatever they pass as a final on-the-bus or appropriations bill, then the president has that discretion to go ahead with the 5.2%. You are correct. If Congress does not weigh in at all, and they don't they don't say no to it, it does go through. But, Tom, you're getting way ahead of us. Well, I know. We're, That's we're just months at, and months away. We're just at the starting line, and you already are at the finish line. But, yes, those are some of the key points that agencies should look at. What, How does Congress react? What happens with that 8.7% adjustment from called the FAIR Act that Congressman Connolly and Brian Schatz, Senator Brian Schatz, have both pushed forward? And it does. it is a bipartisan correct. bill. Does have a Republican sponsor, which is key. The other piece that I think we have to watch is the House Republicans who have been really saying we're going to add a lot of accountability and oversight. How do they weigh in and where does that kind of match up with the Senate? Now, one thing to be clear about, I think this is an underreported fact, is if you think about who is the high ranking members of the Senate Appropriations Committee, you have a Maryland person, you have a Virginia person, you have you have delegates from the Maryland, Virginia, D.C. area who are a lot of federal sure, employees yeah. exist, lead committees that are very important for to get this past the finish line. So I think that's a key factor to this. That's right. Plus, they have the unions kind of cheering this on also that are locally, and that kind of bolsters their feelings about it. So we can't really tell what the general sense of Congress is quite this early. But as you point out, even the FAIR Act does have some Republican backers. Absolutely. And I think that's why this 5.2 uh, percent, while it's not where inflation has been, which has been between 7 and 8 percent over the last year, year and a half, I think what it shows is that that there is some some appetite for a bigger pay raise. Again, what we saw this past year, Tom, was about 4.6 percent, with uh, 4.1 percent being the pay raise and a, a half a percent for locality pay. I imagine that there's going to be a lot of pressure to at least get that 
again. And I know a lot of federal employees are listening, probably going, great. So I took a 4% cut instead of a 8% cut to my because of inflation. But hey, I think I also have heard from other federal employees, every little bit does help. And it's better to, than the 2 and 3% we saw in previous administrations. Sure. And they see Dreamliner pilots who make more than the president already getting deals that will raise their pay 40% over a couple of years. So you look at the greater economy and some people are taking care of inflation and moving beyond the numbers. What else is the White House signaling in terms of investment in that workforce, which again, part of the president's management agenda? What's key about any budget document is that the policies that come from it or where, where the, the administration says we want to go. Because we know, Tom, the numbers as they get to Capitol Hill, they, they are DOA, right? Dead on arrival. Congress does what they want to do. There's some input from the White House. But so what we're looking at in terms of the federal workforce and strengthening them is a, a couple things. Number one, they want to uh, expand the federal strategic agency hiring capacity. They want to prioritize robust early career pipelines. You know, that includes paid federal internships. They want to implement strategic diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility plans. And, of course, what we've seen before is the reimagining of federal executive boards to foster better coordination, collaboration across the country. Because, Tom, as we know, 88% of all feds do not live in the D.C. area. So these federal executive boards can play and should play a much bigger role. Yeah, they were established back in the Kennedy administration, and they've kind of gone dormant in recent years. I remember when there were big snowstorms in, say, Boston. On this station, we'd call up Boston to try to find out what's going on. But... They've gone dormant. They have to a certain extent. They're, some are more active than others. I think if you find the ones up on the East Coast, yes, those I think are, are, are more active. The ones as you go further west, I think there maybe have been less active over the last few years. But I think that the administration sees value because, again, who does the work each day? It's the people in the field. That's how you communicate with them. And, and to that end, Tom, they also the, – the administration wants to invest in the Office of Personnel Management. This really stood out to me. Again, we'll go to numbers, and the numbers, again, are just a starting point. But the request for OPM is $464 million. That's $78 million above the 2023 enacted level. And a bunch of that $78 million is supposed to go for salaries and expenses really to build back up OPM, which has taken a lot of heat over the last four or five years, especially during the Trump administration when they were looking to merge it with the General Services Administration. And the employees started to leave and said, hey, maybe I need to find a new job. Of course, that brings pressure for OPM because then they've got to get results on getting rid of, say, the annuity figuring backlog and things like that. There's a lot of pressure on OPM, and they're, 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 I've not heard anyone at OPM ever tell me we have enough people. Again, I can say that for almost every agency across the board as well. But I think what's interesting is that what they're signaling is they want to expand, for instance, uh, the, the customer service around the idea of strategic workforce planning, talent acquisition. They want to expand the hiring experience office, which is really help to pool hiring actions, improve the applicant hiring experience. So there's some really key things that can happen even without this huge extra money. But there's, again, policy decisions that are being pushed through the budget. Right. And we do know Congress is pushing OPM on those very fronts. In the hearing earlier this week, that's what they were pressing on, especially hiring. So with money comes expectations. And Jason, I have to ask you, you must have looked at what you can glean on technology and customer experience and all those types of things. What are the early signs that they're asking for for 2024? We're still waiting to see the thick budget. This is still considered the skinny budget. But what we do know, Tom, is that for the Technology Modernization Fund, a key 
a way to get rid of that technical debt that a lot of agencies are suffering from. The administration wants $200 million. Now, remember, they've already handed out more than $700 million to, to something like 38 investments, 22 agencies. So there's a lot of effort here to, to continue that investment. They also want to give more money, obviously, to the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA. They want to give them $145 million more for a total of $3.1 billion in 2024. Now, some of this would be $98 million, for instance, Tom, would be to implement cyber incident reporting for critical infrastructure, and of course, $425 million to improve CISA's internal cybersecurity and analytical capabilities. So kind of some figures there, but again, where they want CISA to go. Customer experience, which our colleague Jory Heckman will have a full report on. I'll just give you a couple highlights. There's a big focus on investing with talent. So for instance, the GSA's Technology Transformation Service, they want to take experts from TTS and put them in agencies to help them improve specific areas of customer experience. One such agency would be the Transportation Security Administration, which, again, really a focus on improving the professionalization of the transportation security officers, improving that customer experience, as well as Department of State's around passport renewals, and of course, IRS around customer experience, just from all facets of how they interact with citizens. Yeah, so this sounds like the high-impact agencies that we have been hearing about being singled out for a couple of years now. Absolutely. And I think what they're seeing is there's progress being made, but according to, let's quote our friends at GAO, more progress can be made. And I think that little bit of push from some people with uh, some real expertise, I think the administration believes will be really helpful at this point in time. Well, we'll be watching for the details as they emerge in that thick budget. And we know you will. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And check out his reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, this agency got so much extra funding already, it's got to reorganize. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The National Science Foundation, as we heard from Director Saturaman Panchanathan the other day, received a new billion dollars in funding from the CHIPS Act. And to help deal with a record budget, NSF is adding a new office called the Office of Business Information Technology Services, or BITS. Here with the details, NSF's Chief Operating Officer, Dr. Karen Marangel. Dr. Marangel, good to have you with us. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Tom. This new office, what will it do? It sounds like information technology and data management and a lot of things. Yes, that's right. So the information technology, innovation, data are essentially critical as we begin to experience significant growth at the National Science Foundation, fueled in part by the new chips and science legislation and our record funding in fiscal year 23. We're expanding quickly as an agency, and we really need to position ourselves with the right structure and the right resources so that we can continue to provide outstanding information technology services to both our staff and the external research community. So we had recommendations coming to us from two internal business groups that helped launch our internal discussions outlining this type of restructuring. 
we had an evidence and data governance steering committee within NSF, and they recommended some centralized data analytics services for the agency. And those are going to function more smoothly as they're paired with an integrated IT and data management management strategy under one organization. Now, let me stop you there for a second. The NSF has had a CIO for a long time, though, right? Yes, that is correct. So is this more a function of being able to manage all of the new grants channels and all of the new, mostly grant spending? That's what NSF typically or principally does. So is it just that the volume is such that you need more structure to keep track of everything? Yeah, so we we have seen both an increase in volume, but an increase in expectation for how we're analyzing data about who we're funding, what we're funding, and then more of a press on innovations and technologies. So we've all heard about uh, the recent advances in AI with ChatGPT and and the new Bing chatbot. We need to really be ahead of the curve on how we're integrating technologies like AI and other innovations into our everyday workplace. And will you use AI to evaluate grants applications to make sure they weren't generated by one of these terrible machines that will sound great, but there might be nobody behind it? Well, we're going to need to deal with that. So, yes, this is this is absolutely something that needs to be integrated in in this new this new organization. And is there already a chief data officer at NSF, or will you be adding that, or it'll be integrated better with a CIO in some manner? That's exactly right. We do have a chief data officer, and we're going to be integrating all of those services under this new business information technology, which is our tentative name, under this new organization. Really, there's been a lot decentralized at NSF, and we're looking to create um, efficiencies and a, a tighter vision by bringing these all together under this one organization. I guess with so many people giving so many grants at such dollar levels, there is the possibility of maybe duplication of effort. And therefore, kind of by definition, the dollars don't go as far as they could. Yeah, that's right, Tom. It is something that we keep track of already today, um, but we can we, we can certainly beef up the analytics to ensure that we are spending the precious dollars that we have really in, in the most efficient and effective ways possible. And let me ask you this. I imagine you're hiring a lot of people because that's what agencies mean when they grow because you need people to do this. Is there any way that this office can aid in the talent management topic to make sure you get the right people that can understand the granting and et cetera, et cetera, because you know, you're competing with industry that's also being funded under the same law? Yeah, the, the position is going to establish the strategic direction and certainly provide that leadership in the formulation, development, and execution of, of all of NSF's IT management programs. And so that could certainly spill into how we are evaluating candidates for, for the, the critical positions and the needs that we have. Really, the top priorities for this position are improving our mission delivery and performance by maximizing new technologies, existing technologies, and data systems to really help the agency formulate our policies, positions, and our responses to current and emerging information technology. We're speaking with Dr. Karen Marangel. She is Chief Operating Officer of the National Science Foundation. And just if you would put yourself in the position of someone making a grant in one of the NSF's, I'm calling them channels, but domains that in which you make grants, if I am a granting manager, what can I look to the new office bits to, for, to help me in my job? 
Yeah, sure. So for our PIs, our principal investigators, and I used to be one, what we're hoping for is a more streamlined process uh, for for those who are applying to the NSF. And really, the doors are wide open there for for what we can continue to provide to our community, but but really expand in the offerings. And then on the internal side, for program officers and staff who manage our, uh, you know, our vast array of grants, Again, access to data is critically important, but really bringing new tools to bear uh, to our work environments in how we manage and better manage the grants that we give out. And are there standardized metrics to grants or grantee performance such that that can all be rolled up into some kind of a dashboard? That's a great word. I haven't asked you about cloud yet, but let's talk about dashboards. Everybody does. And can a subject matter expert or grant maker or, you know, you use the other word that you actually call those people, can they see how do these people do the last time or how do they compare with other grantees in the same general domain? Yeah. So every every grantee is required to submit reports annually. And those data right now, there's a lot of manual work that has to get into, into how we how we pull data from those reports. So there's a lot there that can be improved upon, streamlined, so that that data can can really feed into the to the decision makers, the program officers and, and others who are making decisions. And since one of NSF's primary goals right now is what we call reaching the missing millions, really increasing the diversity of the STEM workforce, this is critically important that we have the type of data to help us understand how we're making progress along those metrics in the in the work that we're funding. But there's also a danger in that, in that you don't want grant making on the basis of, say, race or the basis of something other than the quality of the application. Precisely. And I think we have so many checks and balances in place. We really do have the gold standard of of grant review um, and grant making that is replicated really throughout the world. But you're absolutely right, Tom. On the other hand, there's the assumption that there are many would-be grant receivers at, say, HBCUs or historically Hispanic-speaking institutions that simply aren't there yet, and you need to attract them into the ecosystem. That's right. And the technology is going to help us both do better types of outreach, but also, again, keep us honest in in how we're making progress towards those goals. All right. And it sounds like there's a bit of IT modernization that has to happen, some technology infusion that you need. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we have been really at the vanguard in so many ways at the National Science Foundation. We want to ensure that we're staying at that vanguard in both the services that we're providing to our own staff and to the communities. So innovation is really the name of the game. That's a really important component of what we're looking for in, in the leader to uh, to lead this new organization. And you are in the search for a CIO. Is that the person you mean or will be somebody at, at the BITS directors, let's say? Or, yeah, or... yeah. So, yes. Yeah. So this this will be – so the person leading the new business information technology organization will be a, a senior executive service position at NSF. And they'll, they'll serve as the head of, of our tentatively named Office of Business Information Technology Services. The person will also hold the, the titles of director and uh, chief technology officer and chief information officer. Um, and I'll just point out that the um, we are currently recruiting for this position. So your listeners are exactly the audience that we hope to reach. And the position closes on March 6th. All right. We'll help you get the word out. Dr. Karen Marangel is Chief Operating Officer of the National Science Foundation. Thanks so much for joining me. 
Thanks so much, Tom, for the opportunity to talk about this exciting new office at the National Science Foundation and get the word out to your listeners. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, federal Buy American strategies run into a labor shortage. But first, a state demonstrates what you can do with blockchain and data management for customer experience. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. Rhode Island officials are developing a way to streamline identity management for businesses and individuals. It promises to make life easier for government and its constituents. Here with the details, Rhode Island's Secretary of Commerce, Elizabeth Tanner. Ms. Tanner, good to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. And we don't get too many non-federal officials on the show, so it's good to hear from someone at the state level. Let's begin with the problem that Rhode Island is trying to solve here. We're trying to make it easier to do business, something I'm incredibly passionate about. We did our research to discover that just about every state has a business register the same way through multiple websites, same information on different forms, and we're trying to make it easier. So we want to create a single website for you to enter to provide your information with your digital identity, ideally, so that you don't have to keep saying all that information over and over again. And does this replace or does it build on or do you even have any experience in the state with, say, the DUN numbers that could be a unique identifier for a business? What's interesting about the DUN number is that most businesses before the pandemic didn't have them. Uh, it seems like a lot of them have received them since then. But pre-pandemic, it wasn't a common number that most businesses needed. And this is aimed at all businesses of all sizes. So your bigger businesses might have a Dunn's, but you know some of your restaurants and hair salons, they do not. So you're not talking about simply businesses that want to do business with the state of Rhode Island as contractors, but simply to do business in Rhode Island and get through the regulatory hurdles they need to get through. Initially, we'll be focusing on registering LLCs and corporations. That's our main project. But we're also looking at offering credentials for certain professions. Okay. And how do they do it now? I mean, it's just a matter of if you're a hair salon, that's one agency. And if you're, I don't know, a bowling alley, that's another agency. Well, what's interesting is when you register your business, pretty much everybody has to to file the same paperwork, whether it's at the Secretary of State's office, the Department of Labor and Training, as well as the Division of Taxation. That's what every business has to do. But if you're a hair salon or a restaurant or a plumber, you need different kinds of licenses and different kinds of permissions to be able to operate. We're starting initially with that base where everybody fills out the paperwork for the LLC incorporation, and then we hope to build upon it to focus on additional Uh, additional professions. And we'll be starting with restaurants. Got it. So one portal, everybody does the same thing and it would end confusion then, sounds like. Well, example is that, and and we're still waiting for the budgetary approval for the restaurant space, but you need to use about 11 different websites to open up your restaurant. And ultimately we'd have that down to one. There might be some federal or municipal interactions, so that might add more, but at least all of the state websites would enter through one singular place. Got it. Yes, I remember the case of New York City trying to get regulatory approval for a super-duper European-made comfort station, let's call it, to put on the sidewalk. And there were so many regulations and so many agencies that they determined it was impossible to get it improved, even though the experiment, everyone loved it, this device, this kind of a kiosk type of thing. So I, I understand the problem. And what are the technologies that you're bringing to this project? So it's interesting. We've been very much focused on 
the simplification of the process. Uh, we are looking at potentially using some blockchain technology. I know that the word blockchain makes people nervous, you know, it makes, but what's important to understand is that blockchain might be related to crypto, but this has absolutely nothing to do with crypto. This is very much focused on distributed ledger technology. I like to call it a souped up Excel spreadsheet. And that's what we're hoping to be able to utilize rather than traditional means of holding information. Now, when you mentioned that restaurants each have to go to 11 different websites, that means 11 different entities. And so somehow there has to be an integration of what's happening at those entities then, right, for someone to be able to go to one website and get through what used to be 11. Actually, what we're looking at would not be an integration of all of them, but instead the ability to answer the questions specific to those agencies so they would still retain their own softwares and they would just be connecting to a central, what I call data lake, to provide that information back to each agency. Okay. We're speaking with Liz Tanner. She's Secretary of Commerce for the state of Rhode Island. And is this something that you are doing with state staff developers or do you have a contractor in there? What's your approach from a business standpoint of building this application? So, of course, we have state staffers, but we do have an RFP out right now to require uh, input from a particular body. A software company is what we're really looking for. Ideally, someone who's had experience in doing this kind of work. Not much has been done like this in the United States. We have seen it internationally. And so we hope to copy some of those models. And in a small state like Rhode Island, it's a great place to test that out. Well, it's small, but it's kind of populous, though, right? We have a little over a million people. So some people like to call us a small city, but it's an absolutely beautiful state that our size is to our advantage. It allows us to be able to do things that bigger states cannot. Yeah. All right. I, I, for some reason, I had Rhode Island pictured much more population just because it's tucked between New York and Connecticut and Massachusetts, which are bigger states. But yeah, a million, you're sort of on the New Hampshire size then roughly. We are small but mighty. All right. And what's your timeline? When would you like to deploy this? And what will be the deployment strategy? Like start with hamburger joints, and if it works for them, move on to Italian restaurants and lobster shacks? Uh, We do have some of the best restaurants in America. so uh, And I've eaten in some of them, and I can attest to that. (laughs) That is true. Uh, But initially, we're focusing on the business registration process, you know, the one that everybody has to follow. We hope to receive budgetary funds to do all restaurants. And then it's sort of a matter of saying, what's next? Uh, I think we want to grow our credentials. Right now, uh, we're focused on CPAs. I think we'll be looking at architects and engineers next. And then it's a matter of just making it bigger, stronger, and better, and adding more state agencies on. We're trying to focus on where businesses most often interact with state government. Right. So just again, to reiterate the goal, it would be for a given business could go to a single website to to do all of the registration with the state required instead of multiple websites, as is the case now? That's correct. That's what we're shooting for. What prompted this in the first place? Were you hearing complaints from businesses or just maybe looking at digital services elsewhere and what's possible? As an attorney myself, I've opened up 350 plus LLCs and corporations, and I saw how difficult it could be for them to understand what they needed to do. I was blessed to also have the leadership of both Governor McKee and current Governor McKee and former Governor Raimondo, now Commerce Secretary Raimondo, who understood and saw the potential for this. And so with their support, we've been able to secure funds to take this program to the next phase. All right. So the budget year for Rhode Island and under which you would get funds, would that be July 1st? Is that your fiscal year? 
That's correct. So we do have funds to do the business registration. It's that opening a restaurant that would be in our next budget cycle. Got it. All right. So can we check back with you in the next budget cycle and see how the restaurants did? And hopefully by then we'll have a a much better understanding of how we've been able to technologically set up the business registration process. And let me ask you this. Often new systems are deployed and simultaneously the agency turns off the old one. People flip off the new one, I guess you might say. And if something goes wrong, what is the recourse if the new system is a disaster? I only ask that because I've seen it happen. We are intentionally making sure that this is boring and not risky. We are uh, focused on what the possibilities are. But if for some reason it wasn't going to work, you can still go through the regular websites. You could still go back to paper if we had to. Uh, This is just an alternative way to make it easier to do business. And by the way, is there any communication you're having with anyone at the federal level? Or do you think this could be something you could show the feds and say, hey, look what we did for a certain class of constituent? Maybe you could. I have been blessed to be in contact with many of the other governments that are using this technology and trying to make it easier to do business in their own spaces. And one of them is the federal government in certain places. So there's a lot of great things happening in the federal government that are very similar to what we're trying to do. Liz Tanner is Secretary of Commerce for Rhode Island. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Appreciate the opportunity. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe to the podcast edition wherever you get your shows. Still to come, Federal Buy American strategies are running into a labor shortage. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. Without using the manufacturing capacity of allied nations, the United States probably can't fulfill its own national security needs. One reason is the apparent shortage of skilled manufacturing labor in the United States. This is all according to a study by Bloomberg government. For more, we turn to senior data analyst Paul Murphy. Paul, good to have you back. Good to be with you, Tom. And what were you looking at here? Is this having to do with replenishment of supplies and things because of what we've been shipping to Ukraine? Or is it just future aircraft, ship, plane, gun, ordnance, et cetera, needs? Well, what's prompted uh, our latest research is the surge in demand in uh, government spending, particularly defense spending. It was at record levels last year. But I focused uh, most recently on the uh, declining number of uh, vendors in the industrial base. And this feeds into the whole, you know, the broader discussion about, you know, uh, hiring and labor shortages and so forth. But just to uh, rehash, we were uh, ahead of the uh, hearing. We put out some numbers that showed that Pentagon has lost one of five of their small business suppliers since uh, fiscal 2018. It's down to uh, about 12,600. And it's lost one of five of their large business contractors as well. It's about 32,681. So what's causing this departure from the federal industrial base? And I think there are a number of macro and micro causes to this. And you know, I was uh, looking at it and, and came up with, oh gosh, uh, almost a dozen reasons uh, why the U.S. is experiencing trouble with uh, hiring the federal marketplace. All right. And well, what are the top three? Let's <laughs> say let's go there. Thanks for asking. <laughs> Virtually all of the major contractors are citing COVID-19 as one of the big problems in the last uh, couple of years, particularly last year. 
companies like Lockheed, Boeing, Raytheon, they're all citing illnesses, restrictions, lockdowns, return to work requirements that have led to hiring difficulties, which in turn have led to disruptions in delivery and their supplier base has been experiencing a lot of the same uh, disruptions. So there's been uh, procurement slowdowns and this is contributing more broadly throughout the economy to uh, a broader economic slowdown, which in general is, is slowing hiring. So there's one. So the COVID restrictions you know, are going to let up soon we think the the uh, administration is declaring an end to the uh, health emergency in may port bottlenecks and shipping supply chains appear to be uh, resolving but there are a number of uh, other issues for instance trade restrictions with chalk with China and uh, international hostilities are leading to uh, gaps in certain industries that are uh, slowing down hiring there's a big issue with reduced immigrant labor there's a, a study out from the University of California Davis that the US had two million fewer working age immigrants at the end of 2021 than it would have had if uh, pre-pandemic uh, immigration trends had continued. The researchers say that nearly half of the missing 2 million immigrant workers would have been college educated. And traditionally, these are workers who perform in critical industries like semiconductors and biotech. These industries have depended on immigrant scientists, engineers and entrepreneurs, and a lot of highly educated, skilled uh, workers coming from these other, other countries. And contributing to that are delays in sure. work visas, closed borders. You know, all of it's contributing to a shortage of uh, labor, particularly in uh, industries that are critical to uh, defense and the federal government. Yes, because I think people sometimes miss the fact that if you are building, I don't know, an airplane, it's filled with tens of thousands of components and parts. And those, many of them are made by small businesses, gyroscopes, instruments, connectors, all these little things that go into the hull that might be made by a big prime. That's all they make. And they buy everything else that goes in there. And could it be that just the small business and the procurement regulations and the complexity and the growing complexity of it, could that be a factor limiting companies simply wanting to be in, in the defense industrial base? Oh, sure. I mean, when, of course, when you, you know, uh, limit the number of suppliers, particularly suppliers from you know, China, you, know, you have to be able to you know, backfill parts that were ordered from these companies. And I think we're in the process now you know, with the uh, uh, Inflation Reduction Act of investing in the semiconductor industry and some of these other high-tech industries to build uh, domestic capacity and, and rebuild uh, infrastructure and all the uh, things that feed into um, federal industrial base. But you know, something else that we've documented and, and we've I think maybe talked about in the past is, you know, the uh, consolidation of, of government contracts is leading to this, uh, you know, reduction of small businesses in the, in, in the marketplace, the federal marketplace, and it's consolidating spending in the larger vendors. And this in turn is giving them a lot more leverage in, in terms of hiring and making it more difficult for small businesses to hire. And so when you combine this with, you know, coming off of the COVID restrictions and the uh, supply chain disruptions that everybody's experiencing and inflation, another factor that particularly small businesses are having to cope with is, um, you know, inflation. When salaries are going up, you know, there's a lot more attrition. There's a lot more job shopping. There's uh, higher costs for the vendors, particularly on, you know, fixed price contracts. Sure. So it you know makes it very difficult uh, to hire and perform profitably. We're speaking with Paul Murphy. He's senior data analyst at Bloomberg Government and longtime observer of this market, I should also add. And with respect to hiring in small business, I mean, you have really two places where there might be shortages. And you mentioned the COVID restrictions. A lot of people that are in the so-called office jobs or white-collar jobs, and there's a lot of that that goes along with government contracting to do the cost accounting and contract control and all of the reporting that has to be done. 
those people may want to just continue to telework and their companies may want them back. And then if there's not enough people to do the manufacturing, that's a different problem because that has to be done on site by nature of the work. And yet the people with those skills aren't out there. So is there a double pincher going on there in the small business space? Oh, absolutely. And I think the uh, government can address this by actively taking on policies that that try and encourage more small businesses to enter the federal marketplace. A lot of these innovative contract uh, methods, you know, these non-FAR contracting methods to bring small businesses in need to be multiplied again and again, I think, particularly uh, with the small business sector, because um, there are companies out there capable of doing this work. But you know they need the incentive to to be able to do it. They need to see avenues, and you know when you know you're uh, increasing the um, you know the cyber certifications, you know in CMMC and FedRAMP, uh, and, and and making the barriers to entry to the market you know that much higher. Um, I think there needs to be attention paid to you know all of these issues. You know the uh, supply chain, the uh, lowering the barriers to entry diversifying the contract uh, base and loosening perhaps the, the some of the uh, restrictions on, on awarding visas so that particularly small businesses and mid-sized firms can have access to uh, uh, the workers they need to you know do some of this high-tech work. And when you point to the 20% of companies, both in the large company, large prime, and also the small business sector, it's still you know 20% of all the companies in the DIB. Do you know the breakdown between manufacturing companies and services companies are more leaving in manufacturing versus services or what? I'll be happy to get back to you on that in the next interview. All right. <laughs> we don't know. but uh, oh, uh, It's 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 tight uh, in both uh, services and manufacturing. The numbers that I cited are uh, consolidated numbers. But uh, if you break it down by, by manufacturing, I think you'd see that um, there are particular limitations there as well. Sure. With, in the age of six-digit NAICS codes, I guess it makes it hard to do a lot of the t- – you need some more uh, – places in your in your analytical. So is there a way out? Is there anything that the department can do or the, the, all of the buying departments can do to encourage business formation or at least, if not formation, migration to the federal market? Well, I think we're going to see some natural improvement as a result of the uh, reduced impacts of COVID. Again, you know, the administration's lifting the restrictions you know, on the emergency or imposed by the emergency. So uh, I, I think we're starting to see some resolution of the supply chain and, and the shipment backlogs. Remember all the stories that, you know, out about the backlog at the port of Los Angeles and, and uh, inability to get, uh, you know, goods, you know, uh, out of the ports. I think that's resolving. You know, something that's interesting um, we didn't uh, touch on yet, but um, you know, the companies in their 10Ks are are citing the inability to train workers in security compliance and to get enough workers uh, approved for high security jobs. And so I think there's some company level uh, work that needs to be done. I think Again, looking back out at the uh, the macro level, there's need to you know need to control inflation. To uh, I think that will have an impact on job shopping and you know, wage inflation that will make uh, small mid tier firms uh, that much more competitive because you know they have uh, a record, a history of um, hiring more people per dollar uh, than large firms. So I, I think a focus on 
the more intense job creators uh, in the federal marketplace, any policies that can you know, diversify the contract base and, and uh, make things easier for the small companies to find the workers they need and, and, and sure. you know, pay them competitive wages. So uh, I think a lot of these things need to be done in, in concert. I think you know, when you talk about the you know, Buy America, that tends to rub against you know, some of these initiatives. And it's not just you know, me advocating. You have you know, the, the head of the National Defense Industrial Association. You have senior people last week at the, uh, the Naval Conference, uh, FCS uh, 2023 conference, West, uh, 2023 right. West out in the West Coast. They were uh, talking about you know, the need to diversify supplier base in order to get, get the work done. And so all of these policies need to work together to you know, reinforce a more robust uh, labor market in the federal marketplace. Paul Murphy is a senior data analyst at Bloomberg Government. Hey, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Office of Personnel Management Director Kieran Ahuja faced some tough questions from members of the House Oversight and Accountability Committee. Members asked her about the government's hiring process, the federal health benefits program, and the retirement backlog. Republican committee members really bored in on one topic, and that's telework. They say federal telework leads to problems with public-facing federal services. Democrats and OPM officials argue it helps with recruitment and retention. Here with the latest, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And Drew, tell us about this argument over telework. I'm surprised they're still arguing about that. It's definitely not a new topic, Tom. It's something that both Democrats and Republicans have been talking about for quite a while about the federal government. For example, just earlier this Congress... The House passed the Show Up Act, which would return federal employees to pre-pandemic telework levels. So it's clearly something that Republicans and leaders on the House Oversight and Accountability Committee are now pushing much harder on this as well. They said that it's causing backlogs, delays at several agencies like Social Security Administration, the IRS, etc. And there's a lot of concerns about just public-facing services. They also raise questions about the role of locality pay, how that factors into telework as well. If you have employees who are working from home, but they get D.C.-based locality pay, they were questioning the spending on that as well. But Democrats, on the other hand, said that there's a bit of a finer line between telework during the pandemic and this idea of longer-term telework and putting that into long-term federal workforce reform. Representative Jerry Connolly from Virginia. The frustration I think we're hearing from a lot of our colleagues is the aftermath of universal remote working in a pandemic. That is not a telework program. Rightfully so, my friends on this side of the aisle are saying, hey, when, does, when do we go back to work in a more normal style? Robust telework programs existed before the pandemic and will exist after the pandemic, and we want them. We want them well-managed. We want them overseen. We want them productive. We want them improving morale. That's what Jerry Connolly had to say. Right. And on the other side, you have James Comer, the committee's chairman, who said it's not so cut and dry as well. He is saying that the federal workforce should return to pre-pandemic work conditions, but not necessarily forever. We would support telework yes. if we have evidence that it saves money and doesn't cost efficiency and productivity in the federal government. If telework is the way to go and it saves money and doesn't do anything to harm the the productivity of the the federal employees, we will go along with it. But then we're going to sell those buildings that are empty in downtown Washington like the mayor, uh, Mayor Bowser. 
has suggested uh, it, to try to save money. What about Kieran Ahuja, the OPM director? She said that essentially the pandemic no longer dictates workplace arrangements for the, for the federal workforce, and it's emphasized more on lessons learned now. So taking how telework operated during the pandemic and adjusting as necessary, but continuing to emphasize that remote work and telework options are important wherever possible. OPM also issued a new memo just this week that focused on the future of work and really hammered down or hammered in this idea of telework is important. She said that some of the issues or backlogs, delays, things that were going on in other agencies during the pandemic weren't necessarily the result of telework. Now, I can't speak specifically to what's happening um, at SSA, uh, but I will tell you at the President Management Council level, we talk about these issues and it includes the acting commissioner of SSA. And oftentimes we need to ensure we're looking at every factor to determine, uh, is it telework? Is it staffing? Are there other issues? Uh, The need to make IT enhancements in order to be able to streamline some of those processes. Again, OPM Director Karen Ahuja. And then the retirement backlog, which is something that people are hitting OPM over the head with for years, that also came up at the hearing. Ahuja was asked about that. What's the latest? This is something that is a concern for all members on the committee. They said that the fact that it takes so long to process retirement requests from federal employees If you have someone submit a retirement case at the end of the year, they might not see that reflected in their paycheck for several months down the road. Representative Andy Biggs said that the delays can be up to 13 months at some times. And during that time, annuitants get just a portion of their payments while they wait for the paperwork to be completed. That's outrageous. I appreciate that OPM took some time to provide briefings to staff earlier this week. However, My team reports that OPM staff provided conflicting information on current processing times, refused to provide an update on the existing backlog, and referenced the hope that OPM will onboard two additional staff by the end of the fiscal year. In short, we came away very dissatisfied. Requests for updates on actual cases by email and phone go unreturned, and our constituents feel like no one can help them. There's Andy Biggs, and did Ahuja have any response to that? She said that OPM is planning to launch a retirement app later this year that will include some different tools like an annuity calculator and a chatbot feature to help answer questions about retirement. The goal is to streamline and modernize the process, but she said, you know, this is going to take some time. It is a paper-based system right now, and she's trying to move that along, but many OPM directors have made this a priority, so we'll see how that plays out. Well, it's been from a number of years of underfunding within retirement services. We have not had the investments around staffing and also doing the modernization efforts that we're now doing that's going to take time. I will say, though, that even with the surge in retirement, uh, we have, with uh, situational telework, uh, with folks in the office, It's a paper-based process. We have actually improved processing. Actually, the number of cases that we've processed, we've actually improved that by 20%. All right, so there's Karen Ahuja. This hearing was all over the place, Drew, and I'm glad you were the one to have to sit through it. Federal government hiring reform. This comes up, you know, pretty much every year for the past 25 years. What did the members have this year to say to Ahuja about that? It was a lot of very similar types of arguments, just that the federal government is kind of at this critical point where we have a very small portion of the federal workforce under the age of 30, just 7%. 
And there's challenges with how to hire younger federal employees. Ahuja said that's been a huge focus for OPM. And Democrats argued that uh, telework is important in that equation, too. Ahuja said that there's going to be a talent management plan that OPM is going to submit to Congress this year, and that she's basically trying to plan for more hiring flexibilities, increases in pay, and other ways to try to make it a little bit easier to hire job applicants. All right. And questions about the Federal Employee Health Benefits Program, that GAO report, which we had on the Federal Drive about a month ago, said that there is not sufficient controls against ineligible enrollees. People can enroll wives that were divorced a long time ago, this kind of thing. And there's no evidence that there's great controls against that. Did she have a plan there too, Ahuja? Right. That GAO report, it said that FEHB was spending about a billion dollars a year on these ineligible members. So this gained a lot of attention from some of the committee members. There, OPM just doesn't have a process to identify and remove those members. So who just said that she is trying to manage those improper payments. She didn't give a clear plan, but she said OPM is soon planning to issue an interim final rule to try to address that. Well, it looks like under the budget plan, she'll have plenty of money to do all these things. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin.